0: Welcome to New Books and Economics, a podcast channel of the New Books Network. I'm Tim Jones and my guest today is Patrick Honohan, author of Currency, Credit and Crisis, Central Banking in Ireland and Europe, published in 2019 by Cambridge University Press. For anyone who wants to get to grips with the nature and scale of the last financial crisis, how it was managed and mismanaged, and its particular impact on a small open economy, this is the book to read. This is in part because it covers complex issues, yet is written for a non-specialist audience, but mostly it's because, as Olivier Blanchard says on the back of the book, this is financial crisis seen from the driver's seat. This is because Professor Honaghan is not just an accomplished monetary economist who has taught at the London School of Economics, the University of California, San Diego, the Australian National University, University College Dublin and Trinity Dublin, He was also, during the critical period from 2009 to 2015, the Governor of the Central Bank of Ireland and a member of the Governing Council of the European Central Bank. The book combines a monetary and financial history of Ireland since independence, some theory and history around the formation of the Euro area, and an assessment of lessons learned from the crisis. But best of all for readers like me, it's a behind-the-scenes memoir of crisis firefighting in Ireland and across Europe. Patrick, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Tim. Um, as I said, this book is not a straightforward memoir, but I, I've been a little surprised at how few books have come out from the central banks. I mean, we got Lorenzo Bini-Smaggy wrote a short assessment of the early stage of the crisis, and Panecos Dimitriadis wrote a diary of the Cypriot crisis. But unless I've forgotten someone, um, there's been nothing else like your book, the kind of sweeping analysis. What persuaded you to do this when nobody else did?
1: Well, um, I think, I suppose, the main reason was uh, any financial crisis is very uh, fraught and contested. And uh, lots of different ideas float around what should we we be doing? We should be doing something different to what uh, the people in charge are doing. I thought it was important to get the first draft of history or the second draft of history down while I remembered it while anybody else who might disagree with points could raise points that they disagreed with, people haven't by and large, and set the, set the record straight because funny ideas emerge. I've read a lot of financial history, economic history. Funny ideas emerge uh, usually 10 or 15 years after the events, and they stick in people's minds even though they are very far from the truth. So I wanted to get the, the story down as I saw it. Why, why we did what we did? What were the pressures? What were the alternatives? And um, what were the plans A, B, and C? And and how far down the alphabet did we have to go to get something that that worked?
0: Hmm. Well, I definitely want to come back to some of those, but I think we should begin by setting the scene for when you took office in September two thousand and nine. Um, Lehman Brothers had just had filed for bankruptcy a, a year before, and Ireland more than most countries, had really been hit very hard by the shockwaves. Could, could you set us the scene?
1: Yeah, there is a tendency to say, oh, well, uh, Lehman Brothers failed and it, it, it swept across the world. But actually the countries that were badly hit, inverted commas, by Lehman's were the countries that had put themselves in very vulnerable positions. And it wasn't a question of uh, what, cause, what caused them to collapse. It was a question of which event would trigger a collapse which was inevitable. And that was the case in, in Ireland. The, the, the banks in Ireland, both in the locally owned and controlled banks and the foreign-owned banks that were operating in Ireland had really uh, lost the run of themselves. I mean, this was an age of financialization, the early years of the 2000s and indeed reaching back into the late 1990s, where worldwide uh, banks had access to enormous sums and were looking for places to invest them. The Irish banks were able to source uh, effectively unlimited volumes of of uh, uh, funding, and they ploughed it into property development. Property mm-hmm. not only in Ireland, but property uh, developed by Irish developers in you know London, Chicago, uh, Shanghai, Romania. So this was a. a a characteristic of several other small economies and indeed big economies, but a reckless buccaneering bank in a big economy could easily be coped with by the resources, financial resources of a big economy like Germany. There was a couple of banks got into very bad trouble in Germany, but it wasn't big in relation to the German economy. But in countries like like Ireland and indeed Iceland would be another example, Cyprus would be another example, and um, Buccaneering banks got so big that uh, when they collapsed, as they were inevitably going to do, it just happened that Lehman's was the trigger for uh, a, a sort of global panic, they were too big, or very big, uh, in relation to the capacity of the national government to cope with it. That, that, was, that was Ireland's position. So when the banks had been expanding, and lending money to everybody, not just property developers, they, built, they lent money to the property developers and then they lent money to the uh, households to buy the property that the property developers had built. Um, the, this created a level of income and activity in the economy that also boosted the government's. Revenue. And the government said, well, this is great. We have lots of, of revenue, so we can afford to pay public servants more. We can afford to uh, ha- have more lavish uh, public uh, expenditure programs, many of which were very valuable, some of which may be not so valuable. So the whole uh, economy had got skewed out of what could be sustainable in uh, any kind of medium-term perspective. So that was the situation in September 2008. In fact, it was that it, it the property market had already peaked well before that. It peaked in, in the 2007, and we're already into a downturn situation, and people are saying, well, it's, 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 this is going to be a, 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 a slow, a, a gradual descent into normality. But mm. then the collapse of the world financial system, if you like, or the apparent the near collapse of the world financial system in September and October of 2008, really uh, put, um, put the Irish economy uh, on the skids.
0: Hmm. Well, as you point out there, I mean, I think there's there's always an assumption that um, regulators should have seen these things coming well in advance. And well, in fact, you 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 had famously made some of these warnings I- I- in advance about the uh, the skewing of the Irish economy. But as you point out there, the political incentives and the um, the incentives to households uh, and to corporates were. Or facing the other direction. It, do you think it's ever possible to have a a, a a a powerful enough regulator to overcome those kind of incentives in advance?
1: Um, I think it. I think it is. Um, in well, in a democracy, uh, yeah. in sort of a European environment, there are other. Uh, I remember many years ago uh, advising some small country to uh, so pr- perhaps the. The central bank should say this, and then suddenly realizing that if central bank said that, that uh, they would be immediately have lost their um, their jobs the following day. But the financial regulator, if the financial regulator says something that's going to trigger uh, loss of loss of job, well, that in itself is a powerful tool. Um, it's going to say to the general public, wait a minute we trusted this financial regulator and, and here he, he said something that should happen and the government have stopped him. Um, maybe we're not satisfied with this. So there, there is a democratic feedback. Um, mm. And I, I, ultimately, the financial regulators, true of central bankers as well, they should be prepared to, to take those um, modest financial risks.
0: Yeah. I, again, just focusing on the, the Irish aspect of the crisis, Uh, For the moment, probably, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but probably the most controversial element was the decision against wiping out the senior bondholders at the Anglo-Irish Bank. And and in the book, you wonder aloud uh, who among the non-banks would still be holding 17 billion euros of these in September 2008. And the implication being that it was wealthy funds betting on being paid in full by the taxpayer. With perfect hindsight, do you think there should have been a full bail-in? Of uh, of the bank.
1: Well, yeah, you, know, you know this has become such a complicated question. You uh, you say, yes, yes. In in a with full hindsight, it, there should have been. But with full hindsight, there would also have been a, a legal regime which would have made that straightforward there would have been a european level uh, system of bank resolution as indeed there is now which would have made it the normal thing to do and not something that would uh, make ireland stand out as uh, some kind of uh, pariah in the euro area for having uh, walked away from from bank bondholders this turned out later to be an issue when uh, when it, when an opportunity did arise uh, two years later, when the guarantee had expired for some of the debt to um, to bail in some bondholders, a relatively small amount that was left, but then the spillover effects to other European banking systems were seen as, as really problematic by by the those in charge of the other European banking systems. So, yes, it's easy to say, with hindsight, that's what should have been done. Um, it was also easy for Iceland to walk away, because everybody could see that there is no way Iceland could afford to absorb uh, th- these debts. In Ireland, the situation had become very severe, but not so severe that Ireland couldn't actually afford, at much cost to itself, to, to, to cover, to cover the, these um, liabilities. I, you know, I asked the question, what should different people have thought, given what they knew at the time? That's a that's a more difficult question to answer, and I think the politicians are blamed. Politicians have to take blame because they are the ultimate decision makers. Uh, to some extent, that blame they were not very well informed. They were not they were not provided with very good information at the time. We know that we know the doc see the documentation. Mm-hmm. We know what people were told. Um, given the information they had, they still could have done better, but. Um, it's not surprising that they took the decision that they took remember at that stage ireland was a triple a country so you yes. hear the, you hear there's some problem with the banks uh, people are tossing around numbers like 5 billion or 7 billion and you're thinking well this is just a loan to the banks we'll get it back 5 billion that's not very much com- economy is 150 billion, uh, we're triple A country, well, we can do this. Um, of course, it didn't turn out to be 5 or 7 billion, it turned out to be 60-something billion, and mm. maybe it will be whittled back eventually to 37 or 38 billion, but that's a lot of a lot of money, and they didn't really, had no real concept that they were exposing themselves to that amount of, of loss.
0: Yeah. Uh, you say there that, that obviously now there is this um, framework for uh, resolving banks. But you also point out in the book that even with that, there's been a a very inconsistent approach taken, uh, you know, first with Anglo, then with the Cypriot banks, then with Nova Bank in Portugal and the very ad hoc policy in Italy. So much so that I I think probably the expectation in markets now is that that the framework the, the the governments and regulators will try national regulators will try everything they can to get around the uh, uh, the framework it, what what is your thinking on that?
1: I think you've put your finger on a very important point. Uh, I think that is the market expectation. And I think it's really the expectation among many professionals uh, close to policymaking as well. They say, well, we could use these resolution tools for a small bank, but in a systemic crisis, surely we will not use these tools. Or for a very big bank, "Mm, we don't imagine we could use those tools. Well, let's remember that this, this resolution regime. Uh, and it's it's not just a European one, there's a s- European specific one, but there's a global uh, approach to resolution drawn up by the uh, Financial Stability Board. And this was basically to end too big to fail, to end the situation where banks could get too big and too important as too essential in the economy to, to be allowed to fail and that the taxpayer would have to come in. Now, with this ability to separate essential functions from non-essential functions and to wind down the non-essential functions and continue the essential functions of the bank in operation, those resolution mechanisms are there precisely to avoid uh, the taxpayer having to be drawn into the situation. And yet we hear people saying, well, we won't use it for a big bank. Well, if we're not going to use it for a big bank, why did we bother to go down this road of resolution regime. So I'm concerned about that, and I, I'm, I, I'm constantly urging people to be aware of the need to ensure that the resolution tools are not just there on paper in law, but that they're, the plans and the, the um, preparedness, the living wills are ready to use in the case uh, that a big bank needs to be uh, resolved.
0: Mm. What what about extending that to to sovereigns? Because again, there's there's an implication. Uh, I guess probably since the Cyprus crisis that in in future, um, if 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 a, and, and certainly in the uh, ESM um, uh, statutes now, that if a country requires uh, external finance, official financing, that there should be a some form of bail-in of their of their sovereign bonds is. You you touch on that in the book that that it would have been better if there had been a decision to go one way or another, either full mutualization or bail-in. It, what is your thinking on that today?
1: Uh, I think that we're moving in Europe, step and the European Union step by step towards a situation where there will be increased mutualization and a greater degree of, of um, if you like, collegiality. On these fiscal matters uh, between states, but we're not there yet. Uh, mm. It in in other countries, I think investors in public bonds in uh, are aware that restructurings can and do happen, and we're going to see quite a few of them probably in the in the coming uh, months and, and years uh, after the fallout of the, of the COVID situation. Uh, within Europe, the question is: Does Europe? Uh, stand together for the sovereigns of Europe? And if it does, does it have mechanisms to ensure that countries, individual countries, don't abuse that, that trust, that collegiality, and uh, and get themselves into trouble that they now then push onto the, the, the center? That is the, the nub of the European issue. Uh, many Euro- Europeans want to get to a situation where no European country uh, could feel that it's going to be on its own in the way that uh, the pressured countries in in 2010, 2011, 2013 felt. I think it's something that is still incomplete, Mm. but the measures that were taken earlier in 2020 to establish a common fund, which would be a common common amount of borrowing from the uh, European Commission, to pay for some of the costs of the COVID crisis is an important step in that direction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yes. I, I mean, obviously, we are facing a crisis now on compared to the one you faced in, in, in 2009 on, on, a, on a different scale. And in public comments this year, you said it would be, quote, a, a very big mistake to use the pre- previous crisis as a model for how public finances should be managed. And also that there, there should be nothing comparable to the corrosive finger pointing that so divided Europe last time. Do, do you think in some ways the scale and suddenness of this crisis has been quite clarifying for policymakers, particularly at the ECB actually, even people who would be normally classified as as hawks?
1: I think, yes, I think that reflection on the last crisis has, has uh, led to a number of, of new, um, uh, underst- well-understood principles. Uh, first of all, on the in monetary policy, that the broader range of tools, including uh, quantitative easing and the purchase of, of government and other bonds in the market, uh, that this is a tool that, that needs to be used energetically in the early stages and not uh, put aside... For fear, exaggerated fear of of uh, misbehavior by uh, by particular governments. The other lesson, I think, and perhaps this has been even overlearned, is that uh, fiscal tightening, which occurred very early on in the last crisis, by twenty eleven, by the middle of twenty eleven, most of the big countries had decided uh, that the crisis is over and we better tighten our belts now because we have incurred a lot of debt. It's quite clear now that that happened far too soon and was pursued far too energetically, particularly in countries like the United Kingdom, like Germany, Uh, and and so we found this year 2020 in the COVID crisis, Germany, United Kingdom, United States, uh, even though in, in all of those cases governed by um, conservative parties spending very um, lavishly to ensure that there wasn't a, an excessive fiscal tightening in the middle uh, facing into a crisis. So I think their lessons have been learned, but whether uh, whether the we have arrived at um, a perfect solution, I'm sure we haven't arrived at a perfect solution. The central bank mm-hmm. tools are um, necessary, but they are not yet sufficient to bring the amount of of demand in the economy and inflation back to where people want it to be. And nobody really has a clear perspective on where those fiscal accounts are going to end up if the uh, pandemic continues at a severe level into 2021 or even into
0: 2022. Mm. Yeah, you you also make a very, I mean, speaking of policy mistakes in early on in 2011 you, you make a very interesting point about um, the ecb's interest rate rise that year um and i mean i think it's it's commonly assumed that was a mistake but your explanation was, for it was very interesting you you think it was largely because of the separation principle that had been established be, between the use of policy, policy instruments could you could you talk us through that
1: Yes, I think that um, already in two thousand and eight, uh, the ECB struggled with uh, to figure out in their minds what are we doing now? In, in the, we have a banking crisis, and um, we have high inflation. Middle of two thousand eight, quite high inflation, and um, that would indicate interest rates should be. In fact, they increased interest rates in the middle of two thousand and eight, but at the same time we have a banking crisis. So actually, what we need to do. Uh, is a, a two-handed measure: work on interest rates to ensure that inflation doesn't get out of hand, but be expansive in the in the provision of liquidity to stressed banks, so that market functioning would continue in a normal way. And so, this was a doctrine which was developed at the ECB in two thousand and eight to say we, we we have two two types of tools: one for macroeconomic. Uh, stability and inflation, the other for financial stability and the functioning of the banking system. Now, when so th- that doctrine was still in effect for the following years, when it came to 2011, uh, inflation was starting to pick up again, largely driven by oil price rises. And some calculations that suggested that oil price rises lead to knock on effects, com- demands for wage increases, and knock on. Uh, onto the rest of the economy, that that inflation could get to 3% or higher, and of course the ECB's goal is to keep inflation uh, below, but close to 2%, and so people who are most concerned about inflation felt, well, we know what to do, we have the separation principle, that means we should increase the interest rates to choke off any likely increase in, in inflation. And don't worry, I know we're in a crisis, but we have the other tool, which is expansive liquidity provision to the banking system. And we can we can use that um, for that purpose. So we're not going to destabilize the the banking system. What they should have done is to say, actually, the macroeconomy is still weak all over Europe and in, in, in most parts of Europe. We need to support demand and we need tools in addition to interest rates not only should we... um, we, So we should be using the interest rate to maintain... uh, to demand which is weak because of the crisis and we should be using um, the the lending policies and ultimately of course they should have been using um, a a purchase of, of government securities all policies should have been used to support the macroeconomic stability in addition of course Inflation did go to 3% or above 3% that year, but it didn't have a knock-on effect. So there was a technical error in forecasting that uh, exaggerated the likely impact of these oil price rises. So I think that was that thinking. But of course, we, you have that that, that, um, that that sort of intellectual framework. But behind the scenes also, there was, a, in a sense, a battle between those who are were more hawkish, more conservative, and those who were more Um, liberal, uh, the separation principle allowed each of those camps to have a tool of their own. I think it's clear that when it was proposed to um, raise interest rates, that proposal came not just from the existence of the uh, separation principle, but the proposal came from the Hawks and was um, adopted as a, a compromise position. Yes, this is the this, the, this is the interest rate tool belongs to the hawks. In this case, they will be allowed to do it. Um, the, um, the the compromise will be agreed. That was one thing that I was a little bit uncomfortable with. Um, it was clear that a majority existed to accept that increase, but that majority meant that there was no vote, and so there was no opposition. But I was a bit annoyed when. President Trichet went out to the public and said it was unanimous. But it was unanimous because nobody voted against it or, or uh, argued vigorously against it. But uh, there's a difference between consensus and unanimity.
0: I, I've always found that puzzling uh, with the ECB. You, you mentioned in that chapter a, a what you call a degree of deference to the ECB president. Um but this idea that the ECB Governing Council should never vote, that, that a consensus or a or a majority emerges, and then the president sort of sums it up. But isn't the point of decision making by committees to to generate creative ideas, find creative compromises, and so on? Um, was that the case during your time on the Governing Council, or, or did it tend to be like that that a a majority or a perception of a majority would emerge and then it would just be, you, you would just move on?
1: Well, I think that the there are two considerations that lead the ECB to adopt that single voice and um, not publicising disagreements. Um, one is for coherence of messaging to the market. So if there is a majority, and if, if the majority is is uh, determined on a, on a particular course, there's no point in having... Uh, dissident voices confusing the market as to what's actually going to happen uh, you you have 20 i can't remember the number now it's 19 plus 6 25 now decision makers in the governing council that's far more than the voting members of the of the FOMC are far more than the size of the monetary policy Committee in 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 the Bank of England, and you could have a cacophony, uh, and people trying to then say, "Oh we heard we heard negative views from six members, uh, ambiguous views from five, and then you know you you this this would not be an effective way to communicate the policy decision of the ECB." So that's one reason too, too many decision makers so uh, n- a need to coordinate on on a single voice, Um and so if any. Governor, a member of the Governing Council is to speak on monetary policy, it is an understood principle, though now increasingly being violated, that uh, that that member of, of the Governing Council should be there to explain into the local context and perhaps in the local language what, what the ECB is doing, but not to express their own personal views, as we hear uh, personal views, for example, from members of the US FOMC, we hear personal views from the uh, members of the uh, Bank of England's Monetary Policy So it's a di- it's a different approach. The second reason is that there is still a perception that uh, the independence of thought of members of the Governing Council could be compromised by. Uh, a perceived pressure that they could not act in the interests of the euro area as a whole when that conflicted with the interests of their own country. So you could imagine a country where a higher interest rate was seemed appropriate, um, but for the euro area, a lower interest rate was is, is clearly the right answer to get inflation to, to the right place. Now, is the person from... Coming from the country where the higher interest rate would be appropriate, is that person going to be pilloried at home? Make his or her job made more difficult by the fact that he is identified as a voter in, on one side or the other. So this, this is this is a a, a perception which is more relevant for some countries than for others. Um, I, I, I think that most of the members of the governing council would be quite happy to say in public, look. Um, we joined this system for a common monetary policy. I made my contribution to this common monetary policy in the common interest. I know that we would in Ireland have liked this or that, but um, but that's not what, what you put me in there to do. Uh, however, it's not so easy in some countries for that independence of, of, uh, of thought and um, independence of, of position. Actually, there wasn't much of a conflict in my case During the period that was would have been one one actually not a conflict. I didn't think it was a good idea to raise interest rates for Europe anyway. It wasn't certainly wasn't a good idea for Ireland, but it wasn't a good idea for Europe. So there's no conflict in that case. Uh, A a number of conflicts arose on specific issues, not monetary policy issues, where uh, of course I would uh, be making sure that the Ireland's interest was uh, Hmm. completely represented.
0: But also, I've I've noticed over twenty years that yes, it, r- right at the beginning, I think there was that great worry about uh, national perception. But today, you see people like well, I mean, for example, take take uh, take Ollie Rain in, in in Finland. I mean, Finland was perceived for a long time to be on the hawkish side of the argument, and yet, pretty much all his arguments have been on the dovish side in the last year or a couple of years. Um, uh, uh, François villois you know, he, he adapts his position according to. He seems to adapt his position according to what Euro area conditions are, rather than what French conditions are. So, I, I just I don't quite get why the ECB is sticking with this, with this communications yeah. framework.
1: <clears throat> well, I, I think um, th- this is a situation which gradually evolves. Um, you remember there are nineteen members. The countries that you speak about, uh, Finland and France. It's a an, an, an rather different policy environment um, to some of uh, some of the member countries, where it would be more difficult for them to for the for governors to speak out against what are perceived as, as national interests. But it's an evolving situation, and I wouldn't be surprised over the next number of years if we get to a position where uh, votes were taken and recorded and. Even before votes, and you don't necessarily have to have a vote, Um, the positions are identified. We quite detailed summary minutes, uh, summary reports of the monetary policy discussions are published, but they never identify who said what. Um, They use language like "the view was expressed that." uh, some Many speakers thought, um, some speakers felt, and there's some some kind of mapping. Uh, some means, like, has to be more than one. Uh, the viewers expressed might only be one. Uh, so uh, um, many speakers must be more than I don't know how many. So you, you have a, a, a kind of a code, but I think we could see a move to uh, – this, this has been discussed. It has been discussed uh, as to whether there should be a move. And even in, in my time, which it was now um, – Five or six years ago, uh, that discussion was held, and the view, the view, majority view was taken that um, let's let's not take that step now because of the difficulties that essentially because of the difficulties that would be would be caused for uh, in some countries. So I think it it will happen. Also, what we notice is, and again, this is was already starting to happen particularly around the time that quantitative easing was begun in the early 19 uh, early 2015 late late 2014 discussion of it um uh, uh, you know, basically members of the governing council uh, breaching the convention and saying well I wasn't in favor of this well well that's considered bad form and uh, and and not not productive uh, if there's a, a convention either you stick to the convention or the, or the convention should be abolished it's not right to unilaterally Uh, take advantage of the convention, get a lot of publicity by being the only person who says something. Aha, look, different from the rest of them. Great publicity.
0: Mm -hmm. Actually, on on, on the drafting of statements, I I heard that you were quite heavily used as the only uh, mother tongue speaker, although you were educated in Irish, right? But uh, is that right, that that you you had the nickname of Shakespeare or something like that?
1: Um, you know, um, I, I, I'm sorry to tell you this, but this is true of, of my predecessors as well. It's a kind of um, a conventional, um, it, it's, you know, you could consider it patronizing, but it's only it's only a little joke, really. And it's true that, you know, I sometimes made sure that an apostrophe was, was removed from an it or inserted wherever, whether it was right or, or wrong. Um, yeah uh, yeah obviously um, there are actually a number of other native speakers um uh, Cypriot um, governors t- tend to be maltese a- a as well um but it's true that uh, there's this kind of joking joking reference to we must turn to shakespeare which of course uh, is absolutely wrong because the 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 real masters of, of english are uh, joyce and, and Beckett and absolutely. james Heaney, not shakespeare at all <laughs>
0: Absolutely. Actually, coming coming back to Ireland, um, and I would urge people to read this book because of the lessons that can be learned from Ireland as a test case for a small open economy. And as you say in the book, um, most countries are small and uh, other countries outside the euro area faced similar meltdowns for similar reasons, as you said, like Iceland and Latvia. But taking the whole of the last decade, decade into account, do you think... Ireland would have coped better inside or outside the euro area with the crisis it faced?
1: Um, I'm, I'm pretty sure it did a, a bit better inside. Not an awful lot better, but a, a bit better. Um, with, without being in the euro, yes, there would have been a devaluation. Um, and, and Iceland had a devaluation. Uh, so you can see exactly what would have happened. Iceland did recover somewhat more quickly. Um, it. In, in, in terms of economic activity, it had less unemployment. So this is a kind of distributional change. Uh, people in Ireland who retained their jobs didn't have a reduction in wages, at least at first, and then and then it was more gentle. Uh, people in Iceland didn't lose their jobs, some of them did, but the, even the ones who didn't lost real earnings right away because the exchange rate collapsed. So there are, there are those important differences, but actually both economies Recovered quite well, and um, in, 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 anyway, direct comparison Ireland and Iceland is, is really not not very productive. What what um, Ireland managed to do is it, it's the 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 engine of Ireland's economic performance is based on globalisation, exports, exports of services, multinational corporations. Let's not get into all the business about tax advantages, which I'm not particularly happy about, but that that whole whole, uh, multinational integration in the global economy, that survived right through. And why did it survive? Because these companies realized, actually, we're not affected by this uh, little local problem of a fiscal and banking crisis. Uh, Our contracts are secure, exchange rate is stable, inflation is low, too low. and although the domestic economy, and particularly from the, house, the building, the construction sector, the tax position of households, unemployment situation was uh, very heavily affected, and the over indebtedness of households, but the the engine was intact, and the recovery eventually was very strong, and the economy back to you know below five percent unemployment. Uh, by uh, you know twenty sixteen or something like that. So, and the motor continuing to, to, to function. It, if it hadn't been in the euro area, it would have had a very high inflation rate. Might have driven away those companies. They might not have been able to complete their contracts. And um, so, I, I I'm I'm pretty pretty sure that that. Um, uh, well, another factor is the in- low interest at which Ireland was able eventually to borrow the money that all of this had cost. So, you know, for a while in 2010, 2011, interest rates remained very high. Even the interest rates on the loans from the IMF and, and the European funds were really quite high and, and worryingly so. As if It might, might, not be, might not be low enough. We might not be able to get out of this. But as soon as the European loan funds decided to charge interest on a different basis, this was really driven by what had happened in Greece, and as interest rates came down generally, and as the whole method of financing the uh, deficit of the failed banks through the, the um, uh, working of the central bank lending operations, all ended up with very low interest rate cost. So although the, there was a huge increase in debt, maybe something like 100% of, of, of GNP uh, in additional borrowing over a very short period of time, all this additional borrowing uh, left interest costs really not all that much higher than they mm-hmm. had been uh, before the crisis.
0: Yeah. Well, I, another area where I think um, Ireland might be a test case for the situation we're in now is is the deal you did on uh, promissory notes um, that were used to uh, resolve Anglo. Because these were so expensive to service, the Irish authorities were allowed to swap them for very long-term bonds as long as the central banks sold them um, in the market as conditions improved and seven years on 70% of these bonds have been sold so could you imagine something like this being a model for pandemic related uh, debt that the ECB has taken onto its balance sheet over the coming
1: well of course this was a very um, complicated and and I think ingenious scheme that we ended up with I, I had the good fortune to have taught and um, uh, financial economics and uh, understood a bit about financial engineering and, and tried a few different models and schemes and um, made sure that the scheme that, that we came up with it was com- fully compliant with all the principles and laws governing central banking and, and the euro system but was also of an extreme benefit to um, the future of, of, of the Irish economy and, and, and so forth. So yes, it, it was a a great, a great scheme and uh, now we actually in a way you could say that we used those financial uh, measures to get some of the advantages of quantitative easing several years before quantitative easing started now we have quantitative easing and interest rates are quite low they're quite low they're very low uh, even for countries even Italy, which is high 1.5%, I think they're borrowing 10 years. So very low interest rates. So we already have those mechanisms now in place. So it's not you don't have to develop complicated financial engineering. It, the, the interest rates are low, and as long as they can be kept low, uh, then it is much more easy to finance all of the expenditures that are being made now for COVID. So the, the trick in, in that is to make sure that the markets understand that the borrowing is not now forever. The borrowing is a surge borrowing to deal with a temporary situation. I don't know how temporary, but it's a temporary situation and that uh, fiscal accounts will get back to something like normal uh, fairly soon.
0: But do you think that the the PEP, the, the, the pandemic-related uh, debt that is going to be sitting on the ECB's balance sheets? By the end of this crisis, it. I think. I think there's a perception in markets that it's going to stay there pretty much forever. Um, that's certainly not the communication from, com, communication com, coming from the ECB. And some people have suggested it. It could be converted into perpetuals. Essentially, is, is that something that you would? Uh, uh, is that a view you would share?
1: Well. Uh- it will stay on the on the ECB's balance sheet as long as it's necessary. Now, people get very pessimistic in the middle of crisis and say that we can never get out of this. And so, um, so the markets may say, oh, I think it's going to stay forever. Maybe it won't stay forever. Maybe, they think, well, maybe need, the ECB will be needing to, um, to adjust things for in an entirely different environment. But it'll stay there as long as it's necessary. Will it be converted into, into zero-interest perpetual securities? Um, I'm doubtful of that particular mechanism. I mean, if I think about what is a zero-interest perpetual security, uh, it is actually nothing. So some people who have read legal documents and said, well, ECB could certainly use uh, in zero-interest securities. They could also buy perpetuities. Therefore, they could, also, they could buy zero-interest perpetuities and pay good money for them. You cannot buy a zero-interest perpetuity and pay good money for it. Yeah, that seems nonsense to me I, I don't think that particular mechanism is is, is available but there are but the, the central bank has shown its ability to innovate and to make um, make the burden of debt necessary debt accumulated in a crisis really really very small
0: hmm. okay i have one final question but it's 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 a big one you could answer it quickly though if you like um What kind of economy do you think we're going to be looking at on the other side of the pandemic, and how should governments meet the cost of the long-term repair?
1: I think we'll um, we see a lot of changes in the way things are done. We see a a shift the the shift to Electronic communication in offices will be permanent. Uh, There'll be a whole change in, in commercial property and office way offices work. I think we'll see a, a permanent change in the amount of, of air travel. I could be wrong on that, but I think it will be uh, permanent. And I think we'll see uh, probably a, a, a change in the, in the pattern of hospitality. The, the, all these things will change. So although... There are some great optimists on the financial markets at the moment we speaking, equity markets are still very, very strong. They think the recovery is going to be strong. The recovery may be strong, but it will be differentiated and some parts of the economy will be weak and some people are um, suffering major losses of income. And I imagine that governments will also decide, they won't be forced to, but they will decide under political pressure to rethink uh, social welfare, distributional policies. Uh, I think that the, uh, the fact that, that many governments have, uh, have made large payments, much higher than normal unemployment payments in the immediate aftermath of the, 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 when the crisis broke, reflected a lack of awareness on the part of politicians up to then of how little was being paid to unemployed people. They say, how much are we paying? In Ireland, it's 203 euros a week. Oh, that's not enough. We'll pay them 350. So I think that awareness, hey, wait, we were only paying 203 euros? No, 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 you can't just pay 203 euros. And that will have some lasting effect on uh, that, that sort of thinking will have a lasting effect on the approach of governments and politicians to distribution issues.
0: Right. Well, uh, today I have been talking to Patrick Honahan about his book, Currency, Credit and Crisis, published by Cambridge University Press. Patrick, thanks again for coming onto to the podcast.
1: Thanks very much, Tim.